Brethren, one of the greatest tragedies in the United States, Canada, Britain, and through much of the Western world particularly, is broken marriages, with two marriages coming up right here, one tomorrow and then one a week from tomorrow, and others coming up, of course, around the nation, and so many in our own church having problems because we are human. There are not any unusual problems right now. I'm not just saying that, but there are always problems with this. I want to speak on that this afternoon. Millions of children, as you know, in the United States, tens of millions are without fathers. And I could cite the statistics on all these things, but we read them regularly. Many children are in confusion. They're in rebellion. And it adds a great deal to crime and violence when they don't have their father and mother at home. They need a loving mother, but if the mother's gone working, trying to take care of them, and the mother often has a greater sense of responsibility than the father does, there's something powerful and wonderful about mother love. Mothers stay with their children quite often where the fathers don't. But at any rate, they have a mother, but an absent mother, and no father at all. And so they get rebellious, and things go wrong, and this crime rate is shooting up in the United States partly because of that, and the other things of drunkenness and drug addiction and all the rest. We know that millions of people are getting AIDS and the other sexually transmitted diseases, too, because of this whole thing of very weak homes and broken homes and the lack of a father to set the kind of example and give the kind of teaching and the kind of correction that perhaps only a father can do. What does the Creator have to say about this whole problem of marriage? And even those of you who are married or have been married for years can always learn from this. But we all have to learn the meaning of marriage, and we have to learn to adjust, and we have to learn to make marriage work, because that is such an important part of life. So what does the Creator have to say? At the very beginning, I want to cite again, of course, a very basic verse, but Luke 4, 4. Jesus Christ said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Now, all kinds of people give lip service to that. As you know, most Protestant churches say, well, we believe the Bible. But then they'll have women preachers. And God says it's a shame for a woman to preach in church. They'll have homosexuals up there preaching. And God says that's an abomination. They'll keep the day of the sun rather than God's Sabbath. And that also is an abomination in God's sight. And they'll have all kinds of things that most of their ministers really know are in the Bible, but they have various ways of watering it down. Please don't think, my brethren, that these ministers don't know what the Bible says. They know that. They're very highly educated men. I'm not saying they're deliberately doing evil. Most of them are just deceived individuals. Satan is the god of this world. And back in Revelation 12, verse 9, it talks about Satan the devil who deceives the whole world. So they have been deceived, and some of them are sincere and thinking, well, the Bible is just a collection of good ideas, and so we can water this down and water that down. It's just a reflection of the age in which it was written. And Paul's statements about women preaching are just a reflection of, of his age and the way people thought back then, and we're, we've progressed now. We're so much better, aren't we, as we murder tens of millions of people around the world as we have our Dachau's and our people being slaughtered even now over in various parts of Africa and the Middle East and elsewhere. No, we haven't progressed. As I've pointed out many times and as historians point out, the most highly educated nation on the face of the earth when I was a kid, nine years old boy, and after that was Germany. They had more people with advanced degrees, master's, doctor's degrees, highly trained individuals. 
And the German universities were respected, too. They weren't way backward universities and weren't regarded that way. But the education of this world was so empty as far as real meaning and moral content that they turned right around a few years later after that and began to burn people alive and these gas ovens or sometimes kill them first or gas them first and all this kind of thing. It was horrible. Horrible. It went on and on and on for about six years until it was stopped. And President Eisenhower, himself of German ancestry, you know, Eisenhower is a German name, although many of our German brethren have been sifted through Israel and maybe partly Israelites as far as that's concerned. But they said he was so mad he could hardly speak at first when he saw uh, I guess it was Dachauer, uh, one of the main places he saw one of the terrible concentration camps, and then he began to cuss in a way it never, the, the normal soldiers had never, no so and so and so and so. Man, he was mad. And you would be too if you were there to see that kind of thing, and these bodies all piled, just piles of them, and little children, and all this kind of thing. Highly educated, but not knowing God, not knowing the purpose of God, not really understanding the Bible. One of the stories I've read about the German concentration camps and the whole situation tells about this Lutheran pastor in this church who later repented of what was being done. But he said when the trains came by with the Jews on the way to the concentration camp, they often heard and they knew what was going on. These Jews were crying out from the train, help us, help us. And he said, what did we do? We just sang louder. We just sang louder so that the cries of those Jews would not upset us and make us feel bad. Do you want to sing louder or do you want to blot out the Word of God? Quite often some of us in God's church do that in certain parts of the Bible where we disagree with this or that. We just don't really want to take it seriously as though that applies to us. We're to live by every Word of God. Every one of us, me and you and everything, I have to examine myself every day and say, am I doing that? And I find as I do that or fast and pray and examine myself, then I can realize I need to do better here and need to do better there. And so do each one of us. But let's try to take it in that spirit as far as this subject of marriage. Turn with me right back to the beginning. Mr. Armstrong often started at the beginning, and sometimes I do that too. And I think it's very important in this case. Turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Here he created the man and the woman, or created the man at least. And then he brought all these animals, of course, to Adam. The eternal God said, verse 18, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make an helper comparable to him. Not for him to put his foot on, not way down in capacity and all that kind of thing. Comparable. The same type of individual. And so he brought, of course, to Adam all these birds and beasts and animals. And, of course, he, Adam couldn't share anything with them. He could pet the cow or the horse. And the cows would go, moo! You know? <laughs> I've been around cows a lot. My grandfather was a veterinarian and, and uh, so on. My uncle, Paul, was a veterinarian, so I spent a lot of time at farms and at the Joplin stockyards and so forth. But those animals are interesting, but you can't communicate with them at all. They don't have human understanding. You get pretty lonesome if you, all you had was animals. And so God caused Adam, the uh, helper was not found comparable, so he caused him to fall asleep, took his rib, and of course they try to spiritualize this away. 
God could have done it a different way. I think He literally did that, frankly. I don't think God lies. I think He literally did that. If He could create the whole universe, of course He could do that. That's what He said He did. So I believe He did it just that way. He took literally part of Adam's body and enlarged on that and made that rib into a woman, which is kind of a symbolic thing, of course, as well as literal, because He didn't take part of Adam's big toe <laughs> way down here, but part of Adam's rib right near his heart, so to speak and made that into a woman because she was to be part of him and near his heart and near his emotions and everything else, so to speak. And he made that into a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, verse 23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And he looked at her and he realized so totally different from all these other creatures around him. And, of course, she was absolutely beautiful. She was perfect. And he must have had a great deal of joy in seeing that that kind of a companion was made for him. I don't think he had a lot of sexual lust. He didn't have the background that most little boys have in the United States. He must have thought, wow, she's beautiful and just desirable, whatever. But it was just something that just really heartened his soul, so to speak, to see that kind of creature that's obviously his other half, his other half that was like him in so many ways. She should be called Isha, as the Hebrew says, the literal Hebrew word, because she was taken out of Ish. The woman's name in the beginning was from man. From, Isha means from man. The woman was taken from man. And the man is not whole unless he has that part of him back again in the form of a wife. Now, I don't mean people are nuts if they're not married, but they're more whole, more complete if they have a mate. And, of course, some people have had mates divorce them or they've been widowed and you don't always have to remarry, as the Apostle Paul describes very clearly. And some people like Jesus Christ himself and John the Baptist, knowing they were going to die, and God guided the circumstance, of course, did not marry some of God's prophets. But as a whole, a man or woman is not complete unless they are married and have that opportunity. They're not whole I remember being, uh, Jerry Ruddleson said he was in college there when I was deputy chancellor. He remembers the big guy was, uh, you know, from the Dallas Police Department, six four and a half and about 250 pounds and, and uh, very strong and yet very warm and loving in a way. And I began to kid him back then as a student, and uh, he was not going to beat me up because I was his deputy chancellor. <laughs> and later he worked for us for a while. And I said, well, George, his name was not George, but you better get married. He said, all you guys need to get married by age 30, or you won't be balanced. You'll be, to be kind of weird. So I want all of you to get married by age 30. Well, when he was about 29 and a half or something, he came to me, this great big husky guy, and he said, well, he said, I'm almost 30. What can I do? I said, well, I'll give you papal dispensation for another couple of years. <laughs> now, whether he's married or not by now, I don't know. But anyway, he didn't get married at that time. But it is better for a person to get married because you become more whole in so many ways, as I think you all understand, as I'll explain more in the sermon. She shall be called Ish, or Isha, because she was taken from Ish. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Obviously, you can live nearby, but you're not to let the father or mother dominate your marriage and dominate your life and be joined to his wife. You're to be joined to your wife, and they shall become one flesh. It is not a spiritual union. We have many brethren in the church, whether the woman's in the church, and the man is not, 
and vice versa, although most of us have our mates in the church. So it's not a spiritual union, but it is a physical union with a very strong spiritual typology, a strong spiritual meaning, as we see as we go through the Bible. They shall become one flesh, so they really belong to each other and should understand that they belong to each other physically, in many ways emotionally, sexually. They belong to each other. They're the property of this other individual. Your body's not your body. It belongs to your mate. And you've got to understand that from the beginning, that was God's purpose. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed because they, of course, had not all the dirty jokes and Hollywood movies to give them a misapprehension about sex. Yet, at that time, the devil hadn't got in there and done his dirty work. So God created us, male and female, for the purpose of marriage and for the many other reasons. He had one man and one woman. There were not several women for the man, and there was not two men. And, of course, God never intended for two men to marry. That is an abomination in God's sight, very clearly. An abomination. That's one reason God's going to punish our nation so terribly, because we're getting into that kind of thing, even in the churches of this world. So it's an important lesson to learn. Turn back to Genesis chapter 24, if you would, at this point. Genesis uh, chapter 24 at this time, brethren. And I want to get into something here about just going through some of the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is the Word of God, the mind of God, and the way they describe the meaning of marriage and the way godly people looked at it. Genesis 24, and you'll see here in verse 59, it shows how Rebekah's brothers sent her away. They sent her away to marry Isaac. They sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, remember Abraham had sent his servant to find a wife of his own people, which is another thing. It's better to marry your own kind. God tells you that many times. It's not a spiritual sin to marry those of a different race, but it's better to marry your own people and even within the white race to marry someone like you are. Better for people within the nations of Israel to marry them, others, and within the nations, your own nation of Israel to marry those who are like you are so you can fit together. Physically, mentally, emotionally, socially, culturally, and in every other way. They sent away Rebecca and her nurse and Abraham's servant. She was probably never to see her father again back in those days. Thinking about our Declaration of Independence, brethren, I've heard some speeches over the weekend and read some things, as probably a lot of you have. Mr. Ames was talking about the fireworks last night and all the other things, and I heard some wonderful speeches on the NPR, National Public Radio. In fact, they read part of the preamble to the Declaration and, and how bad that this, this man did this and did that, and he's not worthy to be a king. And boy, this, uh, they went on and on about having the, the need to declare independence back there. Very well-worded, powerful stuff. But many thousands tens of thousands and over time perhaps hundreds of thousands of men and women left Britain they sailed out for Bristol they sailed out from Utrecht they sailed out from various places in Europe and their parents they waved goodbye their relatives friends knowing they would probably never see them again going across the great vast ocean no big airplanes no big modern ships just little old sailing vessels. It was going to be difficult to get there in the first place, knowing they would never see them again. 
whole shiploads of women, as a matter of fact, after the colonies were established, were sent over here to be wives of the settlers. I'm partly American Indian. I don't think it's a lot. I think the 164th or 128th, but many of us are like that. A lot of you know that in your ancestry. One of my great-great-great-grandfathers married a Cherokee squaw, and millions of American men did because they needed a mate, and they were all alone. Here are all these other men. They were normal. They didn't believe in homosexuality, <laughs> and so that's what happened. But these great boatloads of women came over. Did they all have a Hollywood romance? Huh? Did they see some pretty girl across a crowded room through the smoke as the music was playing? You'll never know just how much I love you. And they're all dancing. No, they didn't have that. They were glad to be alive. They were glad to get here safely and glad to have a mate, glad to have a human being they could share their lives with. A different concept than a lot of our young people have grown up with. And you have to understand that. So back here, you see how they sent away Rebecca, perhaps knowing they'd never see her again. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands, of tens of thousands. And may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Gates, plural. This is one of those places, of course, we know God inspired the Bible, so He inspired this, frankly. Everything indicates that because other statements show that our people were to inherit the gates of their enemies. And we have done that. Right now, they're talking over and over again, if you've been reading it, about the Strait of Hormuz and how important that is. The Strait of Hormuz, H-O-R-M-U-Z. And the Iranians are threatening to control, to cut it off, to close it. And it'll shut down about 40% of the world's oil supply if they do it. They can really hurt us. Why? Because God gave us those sea gates and God has taken them all away except two, as I've explained so many times, a little sidelight on here. You see, the brothers didn't say, go ahead and have a wonderful romance and go to, you know, La Jolla or go up to, to uh, San Francisco and have a big hotel and a big wonderful honeymoon and dance cheek to cheek and, and have fun. You know, it didn't, the whole concept was family. The whole concept was building a nation, building a people quite often when you read through the Old Testament, not just Hollywood romance. There ought to be a romantic component to marriage. Ideally, it's much better. But that was not the main thrust as you see it in the Bible. And frankly, many of you and me have been deceived by that other concept. That's just what we've been taught. It's got to be just human physical romance. Kissing, hugging, sex, uh, and all the stuff that's connected with that. That's what young people are just is pumped into their brain over and over and over again. That's what marriage is about, they think. And so if they don't get all that fulfillment that they want in this romantic way, I'm out of here. I'm not as just happy and all filled with joy and excitement and romance anymore. I have to just work and do the dishes or I have to go to this Ford plant and turn the screw every day and, and do this routine job and I come home and you're not happy and you're not romantic and you haven't fixed your hair and taken a bath and put on new perfume as I come in the door and kiss me. I'm out of here. I'm not as happy and romantic as I thought I would be in this marriage. This is what young people go through quite often because they don't understand the meaning of marriage. But back in the Old Testament, the servants of God did have a different concept. Turn to chapter 25, uh, chapter 25, if you would, and then let's begin in verse 21 here. 
Now, Isaac pleaded with the Eternal for his wife because she was barren. A lot of young men today plead that they don't have children. They go get themselves fixed so they can't have children. They don't want to give, to share, to build a family. They just want to have free sex. No children, no responsibility, no nothing. This is the attitude, you see, that we're beginning to be ingrained with today through the media. He desired children, as men did at that time, and God wanted it that way. And he pleaded with God. And so Rebecca conceived, but the children struggled within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I this way? Suddenly she's going to have twins, and they were butting heads inside her, her tummy, inside her womb, and she could feel that. So she went to inquire of the ever-living one. And the Eternal said to her, apparently God really sent a voice or spoke to her directly, that is the God of the Old Testament, Jesus Christ. Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger, which is indeed what happened. And, of course, Esau did not have the great blessing that came to Jacob. And we find the problems that resulted from all the hatred that developed in that particular way. But at any rate, they were thinking about the meaning of marriage and that relationship all through the Old Testament. And it's good that we get a different concept of this. And as these brethren around the world, your brethren down in Perth, Australia, and Johannesburg, and over in London, and up in Toronto, all of us have been affected by this Hollywood stuff all over the English-speaking world and elsewhere. We've got to get back to what the mind of God has in store for us, what God tells us. The Bible is the revelation of the mind of God, the God that made us male and female, the God that created marriage in the first place. So let's understand. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7 now. God says here in verse 1, When the eternal your God brings you into the land and you're going to possess it, and has cast out many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, and all the other ites, seven nations greater than mightier than you, all these pagan nations. There were some of them sacrificing their children to demons, burning them in the fire, everything else. He says, when he's delivered you, and you conquer them and utterly destroy them, you shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. You shall not make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son or take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the eternal will be aroused against you to destroy you suddenly. God tells us not to marry uh, pagans. He tells us not to marry those that are frankly not in spiritual Israel today. Most of you know that, but let's turn quickly back, if you would, to 2 Corinthians. Turn back to 2 Corinthians at this point, and let's read what God says back here before I go back again to the Old Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. God tells us in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, the spiritual Gentiles, those that don't know God. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? The Greek word quite often in your New Testament is not unrighteousness or whatever, as the old King James has it. It's lawlessness, anamos, against God's law. What fellowship? Has what communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an infidel? So he says in verse 17, Come out from among them, be separate. And he quotes this principle that God gave to Israel to come out from among the pagans. 
And, of course, we're not to come out from among them in our nation here in the sense of not being around them and having friends of our neighbors and others, but we're not to marry those that are not in God's church because if you're already married, you're bound by God. The church has always taught that, by the way. But if you're not married yet, take this seriously. If you're going to really be one flesh with another human being, and you're also going to be one flesh in the sense not just of sexual activities, but in the way you share your whole lives, your vacations, your plans, your hopes, your dreams, your children. Do your children observe Christmas? Do they observe Easter, the pagan holidays? What kind of home are you going to have? If you have someone that has a totally different mind, you can very quickly have hell on earth, frankly, if that person is not converted. You really can, and you need to understand that. So God warns about that. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And God's begin to teach that even back here in Deuteronomy. Now let's go to Ecclesiastes, going back to the Old Testament again. I'm going through the Old Testament here for a bit at first. Ecclesiastes, brethren, chapter 9. And God tells us about the right kind of life and the wonderful physical things God does want us to have. God is not against wonderful physical joy. He created it. He created wine to gladden the heart of man. He created male and female. He created sex. He's not embarrassed by it. What was God's first command to male and female? Be careful. Stay away. No. He said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. That's what He told them to do. But in marriage, of course, he tells the rest of the Bible that you ought to do that in marriage and have a meaning for it, not to be just animals. So God says here in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7, Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white, and let your head lack no oil. See, learn to enjoy the physical blessings that God gives you in a right way, with wine and oil and really good things. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life which she's given you under the sun. Rejoice in your beautiful young wife. Delight in her beauty. Delight in her love. That's not wrong. God wants you to do that. For that is your portion in life. You're just here for a short time. If you take yourself too seriously, you won't have much fun. Your life won't mean as much. And in the labor which you perform under the sun... Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. So certainly you want to work hard in your job, profession, but you want to learn to have a very happy life and work hard to build your family and work hard at having a happy family too, in that way with your wife and your children. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. So you better learn to be happy now because you may not live forever and you better enjoy what you can, but within God's laws, of course, so you can live forever. And God tells that, and that's God's attitude. Many of our ancestors grew up with what we call a Victorian mentality. And I know my, I've told you about my old Methodist grandmother, whom I love very, very much. She's the one I use as the example because I did love her so much. And she's the only one that lived beyond age, the time I was age nine. All the others were dead by the time I was nine years old. 
But I do remember Grandmother Meredith because she just lived about two blocks away and we could go over back and forth and help her and talk to her. And as a rebellious teenager, yes, I was a rebellious teenager at one point, <clears throat> I'd get mad on Saturday. We didn't keep the Sabbath and I'd start to do something or read. My mother start this and she didn't give me a list of everything. It seemed like every time I started to do something or in my mind, you know, my teenage rebellious mind, well, I'd start to do something and say, well, go do this and go do that. Finally, I'd just slam the door and go over to Grandmother. And after a while, I'd hear the phone ring, and grandmother would say, yes, he's here, he's okay. <laughs> she was checking up on me, my mother was, and grandma would give me tea and sympathy. So she was a wonderful old gal, she really was, in so many ways, helped people all over Joplin. She took food baskets out to the poor. And one of the few times I got to drive my father's car growing up during the war and right after the war when there was gas rationing and only one car and it was getting old and everything else, why, my dad didn't let me use the car very much. But he'd let me use the car to take grandmother out to help people. And that gave me an excuse to go out. And I got that experience of seeing her do that as a, as a worldly Christian, but very nice, wonderful Methodist lady. But as an old-fashioned Methodist, don't do this, don't do that. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, go, go to movies and so forth. She had all that ingrained. And the whole concept was, well, somehow her, her two children got here. We don't know why, but somehow they appeared. But <laughs> you don't talk about sex because that's not nice. Now, the Europeans had a totally different attitude toward sex. Some of us used to think they were bad. And in some ways, maybe they were worse than us. In some ways, we're worse than them. Because they were more open about physical things. When Dick Armstrong and I first went to Europe back in 1954, because some, before so many millions of Americans went over there and the French had to be more careful just so they wouldn't offend the tourists and lose the tourist dollars, well, they had these uh, places where the, the men would go. And I remember seeing young men uh, holding their girlfriend's hand and they'd be inside the urinal and just visiting with their girlfriend and so on. And, and but why, wow, that's really something. Well, the girls weren't thinking anything of it because they thought just going to the bathroom was a normal function. Why get all, all buggy about it? But the American, oh, that was awful. We think that's awful. And yet we will see, let our young men and women back then see people killed, disemboweled, blown up, blown up, massacred, stabbed to death. That's okay. But if you even hint about some physical bunk function of the physical, oh boy, that's awful. I remember one of our leading ministers from Brickett Wood told me years ago, who'd lived in Brickett Wood, I guess, 13 years, and he talked about the frontal nudity on TV over there uh, that was not over here yet. And he said, well, he said, that's not ideal, I guess. But he said, we Americans just rejoice in all the violence and have all this, and we get all mad about the other. Which is worse? Adultery or murder? You see what I mean? You want to see adultery? That's awful. You want to see murder? But just seeing a partially nude person or thinking about someone going to the bathroom, that's, that's a horrible sin. But we have these funny old Protestant do's and don'ts in our brain, and I may have shocked you even, some of you, by thinking about that because that's the way your brain works. You've been taught that, taught that's been drilled into your mind that the human body's kind of nasty and sex is kind of nasty and that this and that and something else, but that's not the attitude of billions of other people on the earth today. It's good to get out of your shell if you've traveled widely in Europe or the Orient, you'll realize that. They're not worse than us. Sometimes we're worse than they are. Sin is sin. What is sin? Not the human body. Sin is the transgression of God's law. 
If you commit adultery, or if seeing a partially nude person makes you lust, then you shouldn't be showing that partially nude person. But if the attitude, this, you're seeing people blown up and killed and disemboweled and stabbed to death and strangled in all these Hollywood movies over and over, makes the murder rate go up in this country because people are used to it and they go do that thing all across the United States. And that's pretty bad too. Which is worse, adultery or murder? Figure it out. So we've got to begin to think of the way God thinks about these things. And just the physical part of our body is not some awful thing at all. And you should learn in the right way to think the way God does about the human body, about sex, and about the right use of sex in marriage. Back in Proverbs, again, brethren, and you old folks don't faint, this is the Word of God. This is the Word of God, Proverbs chapter 5. God says in verse 15, Proverbs 5, verse 15, from the word of your great Creator, God says, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Of course, he has an analogy here about your own wife, your own family. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful roe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times and be always enraptured with her love. God's not embarrassed about married love and about young couples loving each other. He says that's what a person ought to do with their mate. He's not a nicey-nice old super-grandfather guy. He wants us to be happy. He wants us to build love in marriage, physical love as well as spiritual love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the eternal, and he ponders all his paths. God watches us. He knows the funny games we play, and we'll get real strict over here, but over here we'll do something else bad and try to make excuse for that. So no matter what it is, we ought to obey God's laws and do things God's way in every aspect of our lives and try in every way to have the mind of God. Brethren, overall, if any of you want to take notes at this point, you may. Of course, I'm just giving an overall definition here. Overall, God's purpose in making us male and female and building and creating marriage, the marriage institution, is to enrich our lives, to give us loving companionship, to produce children and to be to be heirs of God, these children, and to build strong families and nations, to help men and women to be develop stability and to be productive. Because in a home, you know, you can you don't have to wonder, well, who, who shall I run around at night and find my mate or whatever, all this kind of stuff that young people get into, to be stable and productive and to understand the way of give. The way of give. Marriage is the best institution or one of the best institutions to learn the way of give, as I'll explain later. And the fear of God. And if you have problems in marriage, you have to understand the fear of God. Because if you don't have the fear of God, you can flip out. You can divorce your mate. You can run off from the problem rather than facing the problem and going through the problem and working through the situation and learning the lessons you need to learn so the divorce does not have to occur. So marriage is a wonderful place to learn all those lessons. 
very important. Turn now, if you would, brother, to Malachi chapter 2. The book of Malachi, sort of a bridge book between the Old and the New Testaments, the very next to the last book of the Old Testament, and many ways referring right over to the New. Malachi chapter 2 and beginning in verse 13, he talks about bad things they were doing. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so the principles apply to us today. Yet he says, this is the second thing you do. Verse 13, what is it? The second thing. You cover the altar of the eternal with tears, with weeping and crying. Sometimes the Israelites would just weep and cry, and, you know, some of our people do at Pentecostal meetings. Oh, God, oh, God, forgive us and help us and whatever. They get emotional about God. Yeah, that's fine. So he does not regard their offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill. Yet you say, for what reason? Here we are pleading and crying and saying, praise the Lord, and then we'll cry and literally cry in a sad sense, what's wrong and why don't you bless us and so on. They seem so sincere, but they won't do what God says. And when you get down to the very bottom line, so to speak, that's the big thing, brethren. God looks to you. Will you do what God says? Or will you make excuses as the worldly churches do? Say, well, the Bible really doesn't mean that, or it's too hard today, or blah, 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 whatever they come up with. Again, I say that they're not always doing that deliberately. God knows their hearts. I don't know their hearts. Some of them are blinded, but that's what they do do. That's why they can keep pagan holidays when they have all this literature all over. These ministers are not stupid. They read that. We're not the only ones who ever heard of, you know, uh, these books on showing Christmas is pagan and Easter is pagan and Sunday's the day of the sun. It's all over the place today more than ever. They know that, but they have a way of explaining it all away. They have a way of explaining away how they can divorce or marry for almost any reason. They can go out and fight and kill, and that makes it all right, whatever, because of whatever excuse. They can have women preachers. They can have homosexual preachers. They can do this, do that, something else. Because the, why is God not pleased? Because the eternal has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Brethren, when you marry a young woman or a man or an older woman, an older man, whatever it may be, better not limit this. When you marry someone, you're making a covenant with this other person in the presence of the God who gives you life and breath. And a covenant based on His Word. And a covenant which pictures a relationship between Christ and the church. And one of the most important covenants that has ever entered into in this physical life. Perhaps the most important covenant of all would be when you're baptized. That's even more important. And a lot of young people, I've baptized hundreds of them. And I have to look back and realize with maybe half of them, it didn't take. The vaccination didn't take, you know. They were just dunked in the water. Did they have the right answers? Yes. Do you believe in Christ? Yes. Do you, do you really repent? Oh, yeah, I really want to do everything. You want to live every... Oh, yeah, they believe all that. But they were just in their last half of their freshman year or the last half of the sophomore year, and all the other kids were getting baptized, and they wanted to date John over here, or Joanne over here, and all the other kids, and it was better that they were baptized. They got baptized to join the club. That was the thing to do. They didn't mean to be evil. It was just that this whole atmosphere made them want to join the club. And as I've explained so many times since, we don't have a club. 
You can't join the club because there isn't any club here. Only God could put you into the church by immersing you into the church. And the way He does that is by giving you His Holy Spirit. I can't give you the Holy Spirit. Mr. Ames can't give you the Holy Spirit. Dr. Linnell, Mr. Crockett, none of the us can give you the Holy Spirit. Only God can give you the Holy Spirit. And the only way you can have God's Holy Spirit, part of the very nature of God in you, is if you really accept the true Christ of the Bible as your Savior, your living head, your high priest, and your coming King whom you will obey, and truly repent of breaking God's law, really repent, abhor yourself, and in your mind and heart sincerely want to bury the old self, literally bury it and let it die. And then you come up to walk in newness of life, and then God gives you the Holy Spirit. If you haven't done that, perhaps some of you right here, your brethren around the world are nice people, but maybe you've never really been converted. Your fruits may show that. You have to examine yourself about that. Well, this is another covenant. That's the most important covenant. That's a covenant to become full sons of God in time. But this is a covenant to decide to bind yourself to another human being for the rest of this physical life as long as the two of you shall live. It should be a very lasting covenant, a very important covenant. She is your companion by covenant, but she, but he did not make them, but, but did he not make them one? And he goes back here, inspired by God, as he writes this Malachi, having a remnant of the Spirit, and why one? Why did God make man and woman one, one flesh, one unit, so to speak, before him? He seeks godly offspring. Now, the queers don't have any godly offspring. Men can't beget children by another man. I think we can figure that out. You don't have to be a genius. That violates the whole concept of marriage. It's blasphemous to even think of such a thing, frankly, as far as thinking about it, to do it. And marriage, the whole purpose of making us male and female and having the marriage covenant, he seeks godly offspring. God wants new beings, potential sons and daughters of God to come along and be born so they may become His children eventually and inherit all eternity with God and with Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. That's why He created marriage. He created marriage for two great purposes. The first, it was not good for man to be alone. Man is not complete and woman either. We have these emotional uh, problems and, and uh, imbalances that we need each other to balance us out and the sexual drive and all the other things to be properly used in marriage. Not evil, but to be properly used. Secondly, he wanted children. He wanted children. So he seeks godly offspring. That's the other great purpose for marriage. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, your attitude. Let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the God of Israel says that He hates divorce. Now, God doesn't hate divorced people. A number of you have been divorced people. One of my daughters is divorced, and we understand that. And God provided in the Bible, as some of you know, for divorce and remarriage under certain conditions. I could take time to go off and drill on that as I've done, but I won't this time. I want to get stick to my basic topic today about building your marriage. There are those cases where it's all right. It's not ideal, though. The divorce was not good because one or both people had wrong attitudes or the divorce would never have happened. So he hates divorce for it covers one's garment with violence. There's an attitude of hate and resentment and bitterness that builds up in people to have a divorce. God hates that attitude. Therefore, take heed to your spirit 
that you do not deal treacherously. God does not want us to deal treacherously with our mate. And God does not want us to be the one to provoke divorce. If someone else does that, that's their problem. And we can pray that that is not the case. And we can try to help them so they won't do that. In some cases, we can talk them out of it or modify our behavior so that does not happen. So we've got to be sure that we do our part. In some cases, people just leave anyway, just like ancient Israel left God, and God divorced them. As you know, God divorced ancient Israel, divorced ancient Judah, but He will take them back again, as in some cases people not can take the same one back again, but can marry again after the divorce uh, in, the, in the New Testament church even, under these certain conditions. So God hates divorce. He wants families... He wants us to build a sense of stability in our society and our lives. And God hates the attitudes of lust, of selfishness. When people think talking about divorce, here's what I want, this is the way I feel, I want this and I want that. All about the self. He hates that attitude, selfishness, disloyalty. They suddenly lose their love for the whole concept of stability and loyalty in marriage. God doesn't like that because the loyalty you show your husband or wife is going to flow over into that ultimate loyalty toward God Himself. And if you're willing to break this covenant just like that, then you're going to break the covenant with God. And God knows that. He hates that attitude of disloyalty and self-will and so forth. Yet, as I've said, He allows divorce and remarriage in certain cases and especially for the sake of the innocent party. Sometimes there is an innocent party. I don't think anyone's totally innocent, and all I've ever talked to know they had a part, but maybe 90% or more is the fault of one person, and they're the ones that really caused the divorce. And God understands that. So we've got to really realize God's attitude toward divorce. He hates it, but He also wants in marriage children. And one of His big purposes in marriage is to have children, to cause people to have children, and homosexuals can't do that. And so, please, you young people and you young people around the world, you're being bombarded by this so-called gay uh, attitude, you know, the gay agenda, I was trying to say. They call it the gay agenda. They are not gay. They're some of the most miserable human beings on earth. Inside, they're frustrated, they're empty, they want to lash out, which they often do, and so on. Because they're not happy. They're not fulfilled. They realize they're wrong. But God does not appreciate that. So anyway, let's understand His purpose in building families. That's part of the reason for marriage. And the so-called homosexual agenda is an awful thing. It will tear our nation to pieces if it keeps God ongoing. And yet the television and the movies and the music... And all this stuff just pouring out is all for that kind of thing. You know that. Trying to tear our nation to pieces. Because we are at the end of an age. We're getting very close to the end. And God's allowing these things. Because we, we're going to get what we deserve. God is going to chasten us as He has never chastened any people in human history. Unless we really repent. Because we're going right back to the way of Sodom and Gomorrah very swiftly. All right, going to New Testament now, let's turn to Matthew, excuse me, Matthew chapter 19, brethren, if you would. Matthew uh, chapter 19 at this point. And I want to uh, begin reading here in verse 3. The Pharisees, 
These were the letter of the law Jews that were the most strict of all, even more than the Sadducees, also came to him, testing him. They're always trying to trap Jesus and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? So, of course, we just read that. God did that for a purpose and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, or as the Old Testament says, cleave to his wife. And brethren, and you young people who are thinking about divorce, when you get married, cleave to your wife. You don't just sort of exist with her. You don't want two you know, ships passing in the night. I know a lot of married couples, they hardly see each other, spend time together. And I knew one couple where the man would come home and say, well, uh, hi, uh, Joanne, and then go upstairs and not say hello to her, kiss her, hug her, do anything. It's just ships passing in the night. Two people coexisting, like we coexisted with the Russians. We call it coexistence. You don't want to coexist with another human being. That's not marriage. When I come home, I kiss and hug my wife. And she usually kisses me back if I've been good. <laughs> and I love her. I want to see her. I want to hold her in my arms. I want to tell her about my day. I want to hear about her day. I want to share my plans, my hopes, my dreams with my wife. And you should build that, learn that, develop that. If you don't just naturally do that, try to learn to do that. To where two human beings that are able to share more and more and more in that way, that's what God wants. I'm not bragging. I don't do that perfectly, but it's what I try to do and basically do do, as I know many of you do, too. I've seen a lot of happy marriages here, and that's wonderful. You obviously do that. So then they are no longer uh, uh, two, but one flesh. You see, they share their plans, their hopes, their dreams. They share not just the same home, but they share the things they're thinking about, the things they're doing, their attitudes and their desires, and things become very much one. And that's very important. You know, when you're really one, you, you, a lot of young people have this in their honeymoon, then they get over later, but you shouldn't get over. Try to keep the honeymoon spirit alive, guys. <laughs> but, uh, some, but I know even today, we don't do it very often, but if we get, if we get in trouble, uh, I think we happened even this summer, I believe at one point, uh, my wife will forget her toothbrush or I'll forget mine. We'll share the same toothbrush. Yes, well, we kiss anyway, so what? <laughs> and uh, you can share the same toothbrush or you can shame, share the same towel or you can shame, share all kinds of things because you're one flesh and you understand that that's the attitude you're like, oh this is this other person over here no you're one flesh your family germs have been passed back and forth over and over again already if you're happily married so might as well enjoy each other's toothbrush if you have to <laughs> my wife's always trying to if her feet get cold at night and we're in a cold place she wants to borrow some of my heavy socks so i always let her of course she puts on some of my heavier socks and so keeps her feet warm if we have these uh, comforters, you know. In Europe, they have this terrible torture chamber. They call it a, a comforter, a Swedish uh, something or other. And then it's a big heavy thing. You'll start, start perspiring up here, and you'll kick it off, and then your feet will be sticking out, getting cold. And it's just a horrible... I don't know why they invent, they, if they invent those torture instruments just for the American tourists or what, but it's awful. <laughs> May God have mercy on them. <laughs> anyway... So what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. You're to learn to love each other, to share these things, and to stay together. 
because it's a type of Christ and the church. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Now, it sounds like the Protestant ministers, they'll often word things a certain way. You notice the way these clever Jews did back there, these Pharisees? Why did Moses command? Jesus told them, he said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, what? He permitted. He didn't command. You see the slight difference, the way they play little word games, these false ministers, little word games, just a slight difference. He didn't command you. He permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. That was not God's plan in the beginning. In the beginning, God wanted you to stay together. He wanted a man and a woman to be one flesh and stay that way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, he gives one uh, uh, thing here, one of the reasons for the divorce being permitted, and marries another, commits adultery. If it's for the other person, and I won't go through the whole thing, but committing blatant immorality, where it's not just maybe one innocent slip, but a number of times or whatever, or they find the person had been very immoral before marriage and didn't acknowledge it, then the innocent one could put him away and remarry. So you're not to remarry except for this. And whoever marries who, who is divorced commits adultery. And his disciples said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, if this law is so binding you can't get out of it, it's better not to marry. You see the reasoning? These disciples were still carnal, saying, boy, you're making, you'll never get out. You can't get rid of that woman no matter what. <laughs> you see, this is their attitude. And he said, well, okay, guys, all cannot accept this saying, but only to those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born from their mother's womb. You know, their body hasn't developed properly. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. They were castrated. And there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. What Jesus did, and Paul did, and John the Baptist did, and other servants of God. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Oh, well, you know, if you're going to be married, you do it God's way. <laughs> he said, you better do it the binding way or not do it at all. So Jesus was pretty strong with them for here, frankly, when you understand it. And I definitely think that's the way Jesus meant this place because I've gone over and over this again in teaching the freshman Bible class and commentaries and prayers. That's what it really has to mean. He said, if you want to be married, you'd be bound and bound and bound and no way out except one or two exceptions. Otherwise, you stay right there in marriage. If you want to be a eunuch, okay, guy, go for it. <laughs> Most of you, I don't want to be a eunuch. Okay, but if you want to get married, you do it God's way. So uh, that's what God tells us. And we've got to do it God's way, brethren. And we'll be much happier if we do. Ephesians chapter 5. Let's turn to Paul's instruction inspired by Almighty God in the book of Ephesians. Turn to chapter 5 here. Of course, this is very famous and I hope familiar to all of us. I'll start a little earlier. Just one verse earlier is helpful, I think, because it shows we're all to submit to one another. It says in verse 20, "...giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God." All of us should try to submit to one another in the fear of God. I remember one time, my, I believe it was my son Michael, my older son, I'd spanked him for something he didn't do, and he explained it to me, and, and, uh, and, 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 I, think, and I somehow really be believed it the way he said it. 
I think Elizabeth, she's not here, I'll get her. She was guilty, we found out later. <laughs> and Michael said, I really didn't do that. And so on. I said, I knelt down, got clear down. He was just a little boy about, you know, two, three, four years old. I said, Daddy, sorry, Michael, I made a mistake. I should not have done that. And I was very vigorous in spanking the children back in those days. And I apologized to him. And, you know, I should have. I didn't always do that perfectly either. But we need to submit to one another. So if I make a mistake, I'd better realize it and apologize. I've really done something wrong. And once I understand that, submit to one another in the fear of God. We've all got to do that. Then he goes on to wives and to marriage. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as... Christ is the head of the church and Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, we know there are a couple of exceptions, but in every aspect of life. But, of course, if the husband commands the wife to do something directly contrary to God's law, God, that's the one exception. God, uh, you know, God should, uh, the wife should say, I have to obey God rather than man. You know, if your husband tries to push you into signing some paper, as one happened to one ambassador college wife at one time, and her husband was getting into illegality, and her wife began to realize that he was cheating and trying to get him to sign this kind of thing. Well, she couldn't do that because she was participating in a crime. So you don't do that. But any normal thing, as I've told my wife, now she doesn't always do this perfectly, <clears throat> but uh, anyway, if every wife would, I think it would actually work. If your husband says, hey, get upset and really sort of acts like he halfway means it, says, well, honey, or, you know, Joanne or whatever her name is, you go jump in the lake. If the if the young wife would literally go in, get on her, ba on her bathing suit and come out, back out of the bedroom, and her husband would say, where are you going? Well, you told me to jump in the lake. That's where I'm going. And he, he realized that whatever he said, now that I'm overdoing it. I understand that, guys, so don't think I'm too literal. But if she had that attitude, the next time he'd probably be a lot more careful what he said. Do you follow me? If the wife had that complete attitude of submission, so you can't tell me to do that. I'm not going to take that off of you. I'm just as good as you are, and you're knowing, you know, bum, bum, all this stuff. Often that happens, and then the husband comes back stronger, and then pretty soon you've got a great big blow up, and then the next week harder, and then the next, and pretty soon they're divorced. But if the wife says, honey, I'm sorry if I made a mistake, hurt your feelings, did this or that, I'll do this, and then whatever, as long as it's not contrary to God's law, what does he argue with? Or sometimes the wife will just cry. Sometimes a wife will just cry. You know one thing that's really hard to do? It's hard to argue with a crying woman. How <laughs> you argue with her? She's just crying. I'm sorry. She's just crying. And it just softens the man if he's normal. So, you know, I'm not telling you all women to put on a show now. But at any rate, there are ways to solve these things without rebelling and saying, I'm a woman's liver and all the same and you don't tell me anything. Well, so many modern girls, they rise up like that. And these divorces come about because they've got that wrong attitude. They haven't been taught that by their mother and grandmother, by the society around them. Even if their mother tried to teach them, the whole society around them is teaching them. Men and women are the same, and women can do the same thing as men, and don't take it off of men anymore, and blah, blah, blah. And pretty soon they just come right like that. And that causes divorce. Don't do that, ladies. It's counterproductive. And most important, it is totally unchristian, unbiblical, wrong. So submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, verse 24, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. 
Husbands, then here's your responsibility. Love your wives. And he's obviously not talking just about romantic love. He's talking about genuine, total, outflowing concern. He describes it. Love your wives, he says, uh, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. You should be laying down your life for your wife, so to speak. You should be supporting her, helping her, encouraging her, providing for her. And a husband ought to learn to be the leader without being the dictator. Because most women want that. They want their husband to take the lead. The normal woman does that unless she's been pumped pumped up with all this crazy women's lib stuff that tears people apart, going to ruin our nation if that took over. I don't think there'd be enough time for all that to take over completely, but it hurts wherever it does take over. We know what happened to the president of Harvard University. The president of Harvard University, the former undersecretary of state or something or other, now a big multi-million, extremely intelligent man, Larry Summerfield. He was literally run out of Harvard because he said that men have a naturally greater capacity in science and math than women. And these young, smart, smart like women there who've been taught all this women's stuff, they, they just created a riot all over and they got this, the, 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 the administration to get rid of him. Do men have a naturally greater tendency toward that? Well, nearly every normal man or woman in the country knows that, little boys and girls. You put little boys and girls in the same room and their dollies over here and stuff over here, and little boys go over and start playing with a little mechanical set, and women go, little girls go playing with the dollies. God put that in their mind from the beginning. Does that make women or weight put down? No. It meant that women were made to be a wife, a mother, and so on, and men were made to be the one to go out and build the buildings, build the big bridges, build the highways, drive the end-ends out, even the Cherokees, <laughs> and conquer the wilderness. And then when they've done all that, the women can come and help them. And the women do help them immeasurably, but the men have to do most of those other things most of the time in every human society on the face of the earth. It isn't just some Christian idea. It's all through China and India and Africa and everywhere else. Because the men naturally have that capacity to do those things more. Can there be an exception once in a while? Of course. Occasionally you have a Madame Curie. Or occasionally you have an outstanding woman artist or something. But you go into the big museums of the world, and who are the big paintings painted by? 90 or 99% by men. You know that. Da Vinci and Michelangelo and Raphael and all the rest of them are men. Did someone tie the women's hands behind them back all these centuries and didn't give them a chance? Of course not. It's just that men have certain capacities, and God put it there. And we're all different in those ways. So anyway, we have to be willing to admit that or we get our minds all messed up again. We think we're all the same. We're not all the same. God made us different for a wonderful purpose so that each one can complement the other. And the woman could submit to the man because he is able to build the cities. He's able to create the society and be the leader and protect her physically, protect her financially, and protect her hopefully in the right way emotionally, and if he's converted spiritually, to guide her in the right way. But you know, a woman has stronger emotions. Does that make her bad? No. As I've said, there's nothing so wonderful in the entire world as mother love, apart from God's love, mother love. And I never had the powerful sense of love and kindness and patience and giving and serving toward my children as my wife does. They just have it. And that's wonderful. 
And they need that responsiveness to respond to their husband, to respond to their children in a wonderful way. And the man doesn't have that. But the man has this kind of mechanical other kind of thing where he can kind of build the society and do that kind of thing, the physical structures and get the computers and the machines up. And then later the women can come and run them and help them out part of the time or much of the time. But the man often has to do the creative stuff and set it up and get it going and manage it and oversee it. Why? Because God has made man that way. It's not a Christian doctrine as such. It just happens. Among the Christians, the Jews, the Mohammedans, the Hindus, the African nations, everywhere on earth, it doesn't make any difference. That's the way God made us. And you women and you young women need to understand that. The women in Harvard University are going to understand that someday. I'm glad they're not here. They'd be throwing rotten tomatoes at me now. <laughs> as I explained to them, reality. <laughs> reality. People don't like to face reality. But anyway, husbands, love your wives. Appreciate the fact that God made the women to be kind and loving and giving and helping if they're guided the right way, of course, and are not filled with this rebellious spirit from women's lib. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. That is mean that a husband ought to clean up his wife. This is what Christ did. And present it to himself a glorious church. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Part of himself. If your wife hurts, you hurt because you cherish her. She's there to help you, to encourage you, to cook your meals, to take care of your home, to bear your children. And when the children are crying and hurting, she can have a sympathy and a capacity to help them and take care of them that you can't have. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. I remember my mother took care of me so many times when I could have been just dying if my mother hadn't been there to do it. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. She's part of you, just as the Lord does the church, for we're members of his body and of his flesh and bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There to be one unit this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning the Christ and the church. The husband and wife thing is not a mystery, because people all over in the Hindu world and the Mohammedan world, they understand that overall. They can see that, that a man and woman are made for each other and have a family. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself, in a special way the Christian is told to love his wife as himself, whereas in the Muslim community, as you know, women are often trod down on and treated like dogs, and even young boys growing up will begin to boss women around by the time they become eight or ten years old. A horrible attitude toward women. That is not right. The deep respect we ought to have for women ought to be taught by the right kind of Christianity, because every one of us is made in the image of God, and women have capacities that men don't have so many in so many different ways. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So this is what we often read at the marriage ceremonies, you know. And a wife, if she's done that, and you young women in the church here and around the world ought to follow through on those marriage vows. Try to be that way. And you young men and you older men who are married, try to be that way, to have that kind of love toward this other person who's sharing your whole life with you. One important thing about love is communication. Adam could not talk to the animals. There was not found a helper like him. 
And many men are the strong, silent type, partly because they're just bashful, partly because they're just sort of made that way. Some of them, let's give them some excuse, and partly because they're selfish. But women are more communicative by nature. We kid about that, but women talk more. And yet another time, some of us ministers talk more than our wives do, so we're talkers too. But at any rate, a man ought to learn to talk to his wife. I have had dozens, brethren, and I'm not exaggerating, maybe hundreds, but I better not say hundreds, I'm not sure, but certainly many dozens of women come to me with tears in their eyes over the years, and they're having problems. Why? My husband just won't talk to me. We're there. I think he loves me, but he never tells me he loves me. We don't share things. So you men have to realize that. You may be the strong, silent type, or you may have been taught that attitude by your father or others, but don't do it. Learn to talk, to help, to comfort, to encourage, to give, to help in every way. One of the ways a husband can be the leader is to be the leader, of course, in the sense of setting the agenda for the family and making decisions. To be the provider, you ought to work hard and take good care of your family in that way, the very best way that you can. That's an important thing. But another way is to be the comforter because women do have these emotions and it's a beautiful thing because it's often used to help you when you get in trouble and your wife will sometimes stand up for you in a way no one else ever will. And your mother will often stand up for you in a way no one else would on the face of this earth. And that's so wonderful. But their feelings can be hurt more quickly and you have to realize that and learn to be the comforter and to realize that you're made there to help them, to encourage them, to put your arm around them and tell them it's okay. I'm, I love you. I'll take care of you. This thing will work out okay. And learn to try to be that way, to be the comforter, to help your wife, to help your daughters when they're growing up too. And all this kind of thing. God wants us to be that way. One thing that's so horribly wrong in marriage and the men are far more guilty in this, so many men allow their minds to wander away from their wives, and they lust after other women in many different ways. Men are attracted by the sense of sight, and they'll see women on TV and half-naked women in movies and pictures and go to the barber shop and here's, you know, these uh, Playboy and penthouse magazines or whatever, and they can have this arousal to think about picturing other women, and that's wrong. But another big thing that some of you older men may not have understood, and I didn't, hadn't understood until Mr. Amen, I was talking to him the other day about my sermon, he said he gets letters, letters, letters from all over about this. The chat rooms on the Internet, they have what they call chat rooms. And there are many, and I've read about it when I got to think about it in the newspapers, there are many millions of men in the United States that get on these Internet chat rooms, and some of you read about it, they will try to seduce young girls into going to a different city and meeting them and sometimes even to leave their parents when they're only 15 years old and maybe they'll rape them and kill them or whatever they do. They don't love them or know them. But just to even, not even that, they're not necessarily sexual predators. They just want to somehow, rather than talking to their own wife and trying consciously to develop a relationship and presenting your wife to you as beautiful, as loving, as special in every way that you can so that you want to relate to her, they will get on the Internet and they will start chatting, having messages back and forth in these chat rooms with a woman. And it could be, fellas, you know this, it could be a man posing as a woman. And you don't know. You don't know. 
because they've caught some of these sexual predators who are trying, who thought they were chatting with this 15-year-old girl, and it turned out to be a 47-year-old male FBI agent. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you don't know, but they get in this chat room and they're exchanging these ideas and feeling sorry for each other or whatever they do, and pretty soon it gets into sexual, in, 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 in you know, double entendres and back and forth and that kind of thing, and they get satisfaction out of that kind of thing. That is sick. That is sick. Here is the wife of your youth sitting right next door or in the room next door, maybe on her sewing machine, and you're next door on your computer having this love affair on a, on a chat room. That is abomination. That is silly, stupid, wrong. You need to do, Mr. Armstrong said this, I'll never forget it. He said, fellas, learn to present your wife to you, yourself. Present her, her to yourself as the most beautiful, loving, sweet thing in the whole world. And that's what I've tried to do, and I don't do that perfectly. I'm aware of the fact that my wife is older than 50. Better not say exactly anymore, get in trouble. <laughs> and uh, I'm aware of that. If I look real careful, I could see some wrinkles, perhaps, or something. They're not really there, but, you know. But when I try to think about her, I don't think about that. I think about this beautiful creature that came up to me in Bakersfield about 32 years ago. And she said, Dr. Meredith, I love you. Then she went on right away. That was such a wonderful sermon and helped me so much. I just remember the first five words, you see. <laughs> That's all I remembered. I remember the, the uh, luminous something about her hair, her eyes, everything about her, and I've never forgotten that. And so I try to present that to myself as my wife, even though I see she's getting older. Some of you ignorant people out there, you think she's getting older, but I know better, you see, because I know the way she really is. <laughs> I'm kidding. But, you know, I think of her that way, and you might think of her a different way. But you fellas, try to do that. You don't have to deceive yourself because that's the personality that you married. That's a, uh, your wife is a human personality and her body is made in the image of God and her personality is a reflection of God too to some extent. And certainly she grows spiritually. Her character will begin to be more and more a reflection of God and God's spirit as she grows in grace and in knowledge. But she is God's child, God's creation, and your wife. So present her to you that way and then start having a chat room with her. <laughs> Go next door. Hug her. Put your arms around her and talk, well, how, how is your day? And begin to think, what is she interested in? How can I help her? How can I relate to what she relates to? How can I encourage her? How can I share my plans and hopes and dreams with her more than I've been doing? Communication. Communication. Adam cannot communicate with the horses and cows, but he sure communicated with Eve when she came along. <laughs> so anyway, we've got to really do that, fellas, more than we do, and not get involved with chat rooms. You women, you young women out there, most of you have been taught to a certain extent that we have found in the ministry that many young women today are not taught to be wives. Their mothers didn't teach them. Now, my wife was taught to be a wife, and my first wife the same way. Grew up on a farm and was taught to cook and sew and keep house and work. And Cheryl is constantly working, helping, building, redoing the house. Is a really wonderful cook. But I've heard of many young women, they met married. Well, I don't know how to cook. Oh, how nice. All your life you thought about getting married, but you never learned how to cook. What are you thinking about if you didn't learn how to cook? Start learning how to cook right now. And you mothers out there, teach your daughters how to cook 
how to use this and that equipment around the house, how to sew, how to be a wife and a mother. Don't be embarrassed to do that. Learn that. And you girls go back and ask your mothers if you have to. And young men need to learn how to support their wives, how to get a job, how to work, how to take care of the house overall, how to be the leader, how to be the provider, how to make wise decisions, to think both sides of the problem through before making a decision, and how to be a comforter. All these things are so important, brethren. Let's turn to Acts chapter 20 now. Acts chapter 20. And I'd like to close with this because there are many other verses, but I want to just have this thought as we close. Paul writes in verse 35, he says he'd been showing them how he'd served them, he'd helped them, he'd sacrificed for them. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, Jesus Christ said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And there is no better place in the entire world to learn to do that than in marriage. You've got to learn to give, and you've got to learn to forgive, to forgive each other, because your wife will make mistakes, and she's got to learn to forgive you, even though it's harder. If a man makes a mistake, he's often harder and does it in a meaner way because he's a macho guy, and the wife has to forgive him and forgive him and forgive him again and again and again. To give and to forgive. Marriage is a wonderful place to learn that. And if you can learn those lessons in marriage, then you can learn to do it in the church community, to give and to forgive and to be a giver. All day long, you want to think, how can I give to my wife physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually? How can I take care of her physically and help her have a good home and enough good food and a place to stay and, and, and give her the things she needs and help take care of her health? Don't work her. Don't work her too hard or let her overwork herself. Help her get the exercise. Help her to get the sleep she needs. Give her emotional comfort and encouragement. Give her spiritual help and encouragement. In every way, help her and the wife Try to help her husband to give, to provide the right kind of a loving home and atmosphere. So when that man comes home, he is able to be the king in his castle. You love him. You kiss him when he comes in the door. He feels loved, warmed, appreciated, and he'll give back to you if you give to him. And the more you give, the more you get. It nearly always works like that. To love each other, to help each other, to encourage each other in marriage. And that can carry over then the way you do in the church and for all eternity. Learn to be a giver. And learn to give and to forgive and to help and to serve in marriage probably better than any other place in this physical life. So marriage is a wonderful thing. Work at it. Don't take it for granted. Many other points could be brought out. But one of the biggest single things to do is to remember Luke 4, 4, do it God's way. And remember that whatever you do, do it with all your might and remember also that the fear of God is the beginning of understanding and of knowledge and of wisdom. The awe of the great Creator, the fear of God. And in the fear of God, build your marriage and make your marriage work. And the best you can, try to teach your children and those around you the same way. And God will bless you and bless all of us for that very much. And it will carry right on over then into the loyalty and the love that we show Jesus Christ. Because as we saw in Ephesians 5, marriage is a type of Christ and the church. Everlasting love, everlasting giving and serving, everlasting loyalty.